Welcome back to another tonic discussion. This week, we're talking about honor. Um, so what is honor? How do you get it? How do you keep it? It's a, uh, seems like a simple topic, but uh, today with society being so divided, uh, what some people think is honorable, other people feel the exact opposite. So it's worthy of discussion. You know, what does it mean to us? Uh, what are some considerations? Um, I'll start just by saying that to me, it's simply reputation. So what's your reputation? Um, if it's good, then you have an honorable reputation. If you do something, perform some action, engage in some behavior that lowers your status and reputation, then uh, that's dishonorable. So. Um, what it is to me is very closely aligned, believe it or not, with the Army values. And really, when you look at the Army values, it's, you know, it spells leadership. So, um, you know, L, loyalty, duty, respect, uh, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. And that honor piece is just living the Army values. So if you live in accordance with those values, then you have honor. So pretty straightforward. Uh, we don't talk so much about the uh, army values uh, anymore. And I'm not the only one that's noticed this. I was having a conversation with a chaplain who, who pointed that out. And I said, you know what, you're right. We used to see it everywhere all the time. And it's just not emphasized as much. Uh, big mystery. In any case, I'll leave my opening thoughts at that and pass it off to whoever else wants to give a stab at what is honor? How do you define it? What are some things that uh, you feel someone must do to be honorable? And some things that, uh, you know, once you do them, dishonors you, maybe permanently, or maybe to an extent that you can uh, remedy that and, and overcome that through spiritual or moral or ethical growth i would say one thing with uh i mean the concept of honor is harder to define but just speaking generally something like uh you mean what you say say what you mean you you know you're man of your word kind of uh people can rely on you to follow through on your commitments or obligations uh you know, and you give on, you give honor to others where it's due, that kind of thing. Uh, and I guess one thing with just the idea of honor, it seems like that really underlies so much of the social fabric of a healthy society that, you know, if you don't have it, I mean, where we, we live today, it's like a very low trust society, you know, where people are kind of what's in it for me self-interest is the motivator and there you got to rely on either a carrot or a stick to get people generally to follow through on things that are needed from them to in order for society you know to function in a healthy way on even the most basic level you know um and it seems like that's that idea of there of, of there being this code of honor is something that has been you know, even though it's necessary for the social fabric, it seems like the, whatever you want to call it, the regime, the powers that be, the dominant ideology, the the influential people in our culture have been 
deliberately undermining that idea or concept for the past few decades, you know, to the point where now there's almost none of it left in the culture as a whole. Uh, so anyway, see John has his hand up. He probably has a lot more insightful things to say about it than me. So I will pass it along. Oh man, that was good. That was, that was really good. Um, so I think the, the maybe the pithiest uh, summation of honor that I've ever come across um, is probably from the ancient Persians who uh, told their told their sons to ride well, shoot straight, and speak the truth. Um, and you know, obviously, that's that's grounded in their time as a uh, cavalry um, warrior aristocracy. Uh, but it kind of gets to the heart of it, which is a combination of um, mastery and uh, virtue. And, but, but a key thing to it is that it's not private. So honor is not just something that you have inside. It's, uh, it, it is intrinsically linked to public recognition of uh, those displays of uh, virtuous behavior, um, and of the the mastery of difficult, uh, challenging skills um, and feats. And so one of the reasons I thought it would be interesting to talk about this today, um, and uh, our discussion earlier, whose who's fault it was, it was actually Mark. Um, <laughs> no, no, uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the first, the uh, earliest. How about how about something like the concept of honor, May Fourth? Really? Okay. Yep. Yep. It was your fault. <laughs> um, but I, what made me warm to it uh, was uh, that Mary ha Mary Harrington of cyborg theocracy fame um, had a short piece a few days ago uh, talking about um, the the absence of honor in the in contemporary society uh, and how this is impacting men. So her thesis is that males have a deep drive to seek honor. Uh, we want to be recognized by other men for having, and women obviously, for you know having done difficult things uh, and having behaved in a, in a heroic fashion. But there are practically no arenas in contemporary society outside of, uh, say, you know, the, uh, certain aspects of the military, for example, um, in which that can be pursued. Like you're certainly not going to come across much honor working in accounts receiving or in academia or uh, journalism, what have you. Uh, and this has led to the retreat of men into the one arena in which they can reliably find honor, or at least it's simulation, which is video games, first-person shooters and role-playing games and things like that, uh, where they increasingly put, you know, all of their time. And then she sort of, you know, goes on and notes how um, in a lot of relationships, uh, you end up with a woman kind of doing the lion's share of the work, both in terms of providing economically, uh, child-rearing, all of that, those kinds of things. So having all of the classic female roles but also kind of taking on the 
classical male role of providing for the family. Um, and the man is left with nothing to do but sit on his hands and then, oh, there's computer games. I can satisfy my deep urge for honor by playing games. And this is obviously not an ideal situation for anyone. It's frustrating for the women and spiritually destructive for the men. Uh, so she finishes her piece um, by saying, you know, this is something that we need to think about as a society. We probably can't turn the clock back uh, in terms of, you know, um, consigning women to uh, a role as uh, only homemakers and banning them from the workplace, for example. Um, but how do we have a society in which men can seek honor, uh, display honor, be recognized um, for the for what they do, uh, and channel that in a way that actually benefits society. So I see Harrison's got his hand up. I'm going to hand it off. But your mic's off. <laughs> there we go. Sorry. I'll start with an observation. Um, that you guys have already kind of hinted at and that's or said explicitly and that's that you don't even hear the word you know honor in everyday conversation you don't hear it in speeches on the news in uh you know in just common discourse at all so that in itself is kind of a it's a that supports you know mary was it mary harrington her point it's like it not only does the do we not have like honor itself, we don't even have the, we don't even speak the word. So there's no even acknowledgement of its very existence in most of the time. And I think there are kind of two dimensions that at least that I can, that I kind of think of it in terms of <clears throat> kind of like a private and a public. So there's the more, well, there's always a social dimension, but what I, what I mean by private is um, more of an individual take, like an individual's own, you know, personal honor and the the way in which they go about their, um, the way in which they conduct themselves. And so that would be kind of along the lines Grant was talking about. But then there's also kind of a public conventional, um, conventional system. Like now this might, this might have just been a, um, a an accident of of terminology but in not not totally um but in rome <clears throat> you had the the course of honors the 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 course of offices the uh, and <clears throat> offices being honors honorum and that was the the ladder of the ladder of offices you know you start at the at the low ranks and you work your way up to to being a consul and so there was this very public and explicit set in stone set in stone system of honors and political honors <clears throat> but they, you could also think of um like uh like in the military i guess um on, uh, awards and, and medals um like for for bravery and things like that like uh, there are systems and like public acknowledgments of achieving certain certain levels of what that society perceives as um you know a virtuous a virtuous course of action or or behavior and it's a, like a public acknowledgement of that and i guess this that even ties into i would think 
maybe we discussed this on Ali's show, the kind of rites of passage. So there's no real rite of passage anymore for you know, becoming a man or becoming a woman. Um, and it seems like, I think there would need to be, <clears throat> so both those, both that promotion of an individual kind of virtuous um, mode of life that isn't necessarily tied to any, um, any structured, you know, hierarch hierarchical system, but there should probably also be a structured hierarchical system that's kind of universally recognized as, well, you know, at this, at this age in life, if you're, if you're, if you're following a certain life path, then, you know, here are some kind of some benchmarks and we still, we still have politics, for instance, you can still work your way up the political ladder, but it's not really tied to any conception of, of virtue or honor. It's just that, okay, well, you, you got your start in local politics and now you're, now you're a governor or a, um, you know, a prime minister or something, but, but yes. Yeah, so, so I guess, how, how do you guys think that, uh, that it should tie into, well, what do you think about the, the Roman system or what I'm just calling a public system of like universally acknowledged, um, conventional norms of achieving something? Or do you think that that's kind of a too structured and it should just be kind of the more individualistic take on, on being honorable in your own life or both? I mean, do you mind if I, I jump in here? Um, Go, Mark. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's like interesting because the first thing, apparently this was my topic, I'm not sure, but um, when we started talking about it, the first thing I thought was, okay, let's isolate what honor is because um, as all of you have, have basically uh, you know, demonstrated, there's a lot of different meanings to that word. There's a whole cluster of synonyms. There's there's things like duty, loyalty, respect, glory is a big one. Um, and I think also things like allegiance and obedience and and most of all deference is the thing that I was trying to was trying to find like what's the through line here? Whether we're talking about the honor of Cicero or if we're talking about the French version of it, which I think is much more tied up in the noun form of it. It's a thing. It's something that um, that you safeguard something that you defend. Um, and again, as, as, as many of you were saying, it's, it's very much related to social reputation. I, I, you, you, you earn a reputation for trust by being honorable is one meaning of the word. Um, but then again, you know, now we live in a, in this postmodern demolition project of language where uh, you know, you have words that are important words and umbrella words like like honor that mean a bunch of different things that are that are actually just, I think maybe even the intersection of a lot of different things, and then that's been atomized and exploded, um, so that it could mean basically anything at all. Like this morning, I saw one of those you know ubiquitous bumper stickers that read, "Proud parent of such and such high school honor student." I thought to myself, I'm like, well, you know, it's basically a bunch of gibberish that runs two really important concepts, uh, being pride and honor. It, it, it essentially, it's untethered from almost everything else that honor used to mean. 
even if we're talking about honor as meaning worthy of respect or worthy of social status. And I think that when you divorce that from things like risk or sacrifice, you know, it's like a, a high school student, you know, at, at most is going to be sacrificing some time. And they're not even really doing it voluntarily, not in our modern public school system, at least. You know, you'd, you'd have to jump up through a whole bunch of hoops or your parents would in order to avoid having to do anything at all. And so, um, so when I think of it, I think of honor. I, I guess I, I, poked, I poked into the etymology a little bit. And it's, it's sort of like, again, it's this bouquet of meanings. But there's two main uses. And I, and I think that like honor can be used as a verb and a noun. You know, they're essentially hominids. Um, and, you know, in the, and I think that those link, they correspond to two categories of honor. Um, one of which is external. And one and the other one is uh, integral, and I think that both of them are tied uh, at a deep level to, again, the concept of reputation, sure, but at an even deeper level to the concept of free will. Um, and because of that, you know, both applications, as noun and verb, have have unique dangers, and and I also think they have the same one. So, like in if you thought of the external form. What we're doing is outsourcing parts of our free will in certain matters to an external person or group, um, meaning of people. You know, we defer to the judgment of someone else that we hold in high esteem for some reason. Uh, that would be how it's used in the fifth commandment, for example, honor your mom and dad, you know. Um, that's honor as a verb. That means you're honoring their wishes, that essentially you're deferring you're uh, a part of your decision-making process to individuals for a particular reason. Uh, and it could also mean, of course, honor the wishes of the judge or, or that king. Um, the, system, the system of honor there is dynamic in the sense that the rules depend on what the source authority decides in a given situation. And you have, you know, you're honor-bound to follow them. Uh, and that's the case, even if they seem illogical or, or contradict previous decisions. And I think the big danger there is by, by outsourcing that part of your will to an external human authority, um, you can do harmful things that can't be undone and then just point to honor and say like, well, honor acquired this of me. You know, your king points at an innocent man and he says, hey, that guy over there offended me. Go chop his head off. You know, if honoring the king's wishes demands that you do that, if that's the demands of honor, then you become a murderer. And supposedly, not through any fault of your own. If, if you disobey, meanwhile, your, your reputation is damaged and it's all your fault because the rule was there and you ignored it. And so then again, as everybody's been saying, you, your, your reputation is damaged, you lose um, trust and social value and maybe, and maybe even the reputational damage extends to your family and to future heirs. Uh, so that's dangerous. And then, and I, but I think that leads into a second form of honor, which is the noun version, what I think a lot of us have been describing, which, which is where you integrate a static, an unchanging rule set that's so deeply, you know, you, you integrate it so deeply into your identity, into your being, really, that it's like building an eternal king uh, or deity who can limit your options and, and basically, not really, but essentially override your will in any given situation because you value that rule set more than even your life. You know, I, I think that's why we link codes of honor 
sort of to military or pseudo-military oaths, you know, codes like chivalry or codes of the samurai or, or any sort of other warrior um, rule set. Because what we're really talking about here when we talk about honor is the idea of that which I would die to defend. In other words, you know, does dishonor is something that becomes, you know, like death becomes preferable to dishonor in certain situations. Um, even if even if that death isn't the result of some external punishment you receive for breaking the rule, which it can be in certain societies, obviously. It's just sort of like, well, you've dishonored yourself, so you know, fall on your sword. Um, and then you do it. And I think like in its, its in its most extreme form, like though, of the integrated form of honor, the inner honor, you know, that's like the sort of honor that killed Alexander Hamilton. And it's also, you know, the sort, sort of honor that turned her into some form of murderer. Uh, so it's dangerous as well, because even on the surface, it seems it seems like it's preferable. But, you know, you have to be very careful about what kinds of codes, what kinds of rules you decide to integrate into your being. Uh, because you should have a set of principles that that you always subscribe to. There should be unchanging things. There should be things that you say this far and no farther. There should be things that you're willing to die for. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, none of that means, I actually think it's very important to have those principles and have a system. Um, and I do think that it's more important to, even though, you know, there can be external authorities that you have trust in, you know, the idea of staking your honor based on somebody else's decision, somebody else's choice is very dangerous. Um, and at the same time, when you integrate a rule, a set of rules, a set of a code of honor into your soul, essentially, uh, you got to be very careful about like what kind of a system that is. You know, is it, you better be sure that it's like, you know, that following that is and, and earning that reputation is, you know, is not like the the ultimate, not the highest, maybe very high, maybe very high in the hierarchy of choice, in the hierarchy of being. Um, but in my opinion, you know, if you're looking at the, the stack of priority when it comes to how do I make this decision that's before me, you know, you could have a set of rules and that could be very, very high up in the hierarchy, very high in the stack. But I think that there's another layer on top of that. And that layer is the one that allows you to choose the best rule set, choose the best set of principles, choose the best honor code. Um, and that, you know, that's what we access to figure out whether we've chosen the, we've chosen the correct system, but it's also the, the layer that we access um, that allows us to break any rule in that system. If you actually break a, an oath of honor, whenever it conflicts with that higher level, um, and I think a guy with the uh, initials JC had a bit to say about what that final layer of judgment is. Uh, and so in that spirit, let me hand it off to our own JC. Have anything to respond to that? Plenty, but Grant's hand was up first. No, go for it, John. All right. Um, first, uh, so you mentioned, uh, you know, proud parents of an honor student. That's at least the student did something. Um, it's better than the proud parents of a gay teen, which I've also seen. Um, it's like, how can you be proud of something that you didn't do anything for? Anyhow. Um, so you fucked up the ass. That's something. That's an accomplishment, <laughs> right? Be proud. 
So um, a lot of this actually seems to come down to uh, sort of a, a deontological framework where you're sort of saying, okay, you know, I have these uh, these rules that have to be followed, like a, a specific code of honor, for example, uh, versus a more uh, virtue ethics kind of way of looking at things where it's something which is harder to define and more intrinsic to, to your own being, uh, which is still in alignment with something uh, positive external to yourself, um, but isn't quite so fixed. And if you go back to the Roman uh, system that Harrison mentioned, so they had the cursus honorum, which is a kind of like formalized honor system uh, that they followed to try and ensure that only, or primarily at least virtuous people would uh, get into uh, office. And they also had the concept of octoritas, which was this more sort of intangible um, aura that uh, someone would gain through their deeds, essentially. Um, through having accomplished real things in the world above and beyond merely holding a certain office. So, you know, there was the office that you held and there was that you actually did while you were in that office, which which gave, gave you octoritas if you did it correctly over time. Um, and, you know, one of the, one, so I, I think a formal system is sort of necessary because honor uh, as a noun is intrinsically related to external uh, recognition. Um, that's kind of what drives men to be honorable, to seek honor. But at the same time, if it's sort of a, a purely formalized system, you can figure out how to gain any system so that, you know, you, uh, you get the badges and uh, hold the offices and dot all the I's and cross all the T's in this kind of very cynical way without ever actually um, living up to the ideals that those were all supposed to represent. Um, so, you know, you look at uh, the modern American military generals and the fruit salad they weigh in their, wear on their chests. Uh, you know, does anyone really look at Mark Milley and, or Lloyd Austin or any of these guys and say, oh, these are very honorable men. They are great warriors. You know, look at all of the badges that they have accumulated over their military careers. Like, no, everyone knows it's a put on, right? Or, you know, the same with like a, a sort of banana republic dictator with like, you know, his, uh, his sashes and uh, medals and all of these things. Like, you know, he didn't do anything to deserve any of that. Um, it's all just a show. So that's that's kind of a big danger with a formalized system is it just becomes a show. Uh, but then if you don't have anything like that, then it's difficult to give men something to actually strive for. So I mean, you need to maintain a kind of suppleness with it where you have both the formal system and the informal system. Um, well, Mark, you also sort of mentioned this whole idea of you know, being willing to die for something. Uh, and I think this is actually really important. Um, I think that also gets to this whole question of sincerity versus irony, where our society has become 
just massively ironic. You're not supposed to take anything seriously. You don't take what you say seriously. You don't take what other people say seriously. Everything is just a joke and a joke wrapped inside of a joke. Um, because to be sincere about something is to, to place some kind of actual value on it. And when you're in a social context where there's liars everywhere, people are constantly trying to manipulate you, um, it's incredibly dangerous to take anything anyone says too seriously because they could just be having you on. Uh, they could be trying to get something out of you. You become very cynical. And then you lose that ability to be sincere yourself. Um, that's a half-formed thought, but uh, something that just occurred to me. Um, finally, I wanted to bring up the 47 Ronin. Because, uh, of course, you're going to talk about honor culture. Um, the uh, the samurai culture of Japan like the springs immediately to mind, right? Um, and, you know, this is an interesting example of uh, a situation where um, these samurai were placed in an impossible conundrum where to maintain their honor, they had to avenge the death of their daimyo, their lord, who had been... Uh, dishonorably murdered. Um, but then they had also been ordered not to do so by the shogun. And to violate his command would also dishonor them. So, you know, they spent years pretending to be just a bunch of drunks and uh, on the surface gave up, you know, every bit of honor that they had. Um, and then when that, uh, when the enemy Lord's guard was completely down, they infiltrated, murdered him, uh, avenged their, uh, their own murdered daimyo's um, death, and then all committed seppuku uh, because they had, after all, um, violated the shogun's command. And by doing that, they sort of successfully solved the the unsolvable problem that had been given to them. And, uh, you know, that, that story is really foundational to Japanese culture. It is probably like their, um, their primary heroic epic almost, you know, has a similar place to like Robin Hood or King Arthur in, uh, in their civilization, because, you know, they solved that problem of honor in such a dramatic way. Uh, so I just leave it at that. Those were fairly disconnected thoughts. Uh, Grant, what did you, what did you, what did you want to say? So I, I don't think that there can be a formal system anymore. You know, I think we're, we're past that because society is just too divided. Um, what I think is honorable, uh, you know, so, so many people might disagree. So, I mean, I use it as a construct. And I think what, what you honed in on, John, in terms of like deontological principles, the alternative is consequentialism. And I reject that. And I don't trust people who are consequentialists because if they perceive at any point in time that uh, screwing me and mine over is, is going to result in the best consequences, well, that's what they're going to do. Um, I will never do that. And a part of what honor is to me is having these deontological principles that everyone around me can be sure that I'm never going to violate. And all I can do to prove that is live my life that way 
and live in accordance with my principles and never violate them. That's the only proof that anybody has. And I want to do that because I want to associate and have and earn the respect of those types of people. I do not care what consequentialists think of me. You know, I care very much what people with uh, deontological principles that are more or less aligned with my own think about me. I'm concerned about their judgment. I'm concerned about being able to associate with them. So you guys, for example, you know, everyone in here is someone that I consider to be honorable. And this is why I'm excited to be a part of this group uh, is because I, I want to be associated with honorable people. And, you know, I try and earn that by living in accordance with those principles. And as you noted, John, as soon as you, as soon as you have a system, it's going to be gamed and it gets gamed in the most perverse way that undermines this fundamental truth. Like that's really all it is, is there's, there's principles, everybody's different, but like, how do we, how do we circumvent the fact that society at whole has lost its way? And I think this is how you do it. You know, you have your own conception of honor um, and you judge those closest to you based on those principles. And the easiest thing to do really is to judge people by the, their own principles, right? Because everybody doesn't have to have the same principles as me. But if they have principles that they espouse and they say, I believe this, or they take an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign domestic and they fail to live up to that oath, uh, they have dishonored themselves. And I do not care what somebody like that thinks about me. And uh, I am absolutely willing to die to fulfill my principles. Um, you know, the, most notably, you know, my boss and the, and the COVID vaccine mandate helped really clarify this to me. Because he asked, well, what, you know, I would get asked by multiple people, like, well, what are you going to do if they deny your religious accommodation request? That's like, you know, court martial, whatever, you know, and it's, well, what if they don't find in your favor? And then it just kind of clicked and I just, you know, said, sir, they're going to have to kill me. There's no way I'm getting a shot. And he was just like, that's awesome. Because he is of that same mind. You know, he's a man with, you know, the ontological principles that he wouldn't violate. This didn't happen to be one of his principles. This wasn't his quote unquote hill to die on. But I have a tremendous amount of respect for that leader. And um, I believe that he's an honorable man because he has principles. And I know he has principles and I know that he followed them. So honor is very important to me. I consider it more of a construct than something that uh, exists. You know, but, but this is like everything, everything in, in terms of human values. I think it's ultimately subjective because it's derived from our, our consciousness. And um, I just, yeah, I have, I have pretty strong opinions on it. And I think that I'm not as concerned about other people's conceptions because I use it. It's very useful to me when I get feedback from people that I consider honorable, that's positive, that, that, makes me prideful. That's how I get 
pride. And I, I see it as a privilege to get to interact with such people that I have such high esteem for. Um, and these days, I just, I really don't care that my mere existence is offensive to some people because I, I know what side of history I'm on and I know who my allies are. Uh, Daniel. Uh, uh, those are good points. And a good example with your, um, the Varix, you know, mandate that you took a stand on. Uh, you know, it's, you know, it's a couple of different th threads that I was, that have come up that I wanted to just, uh, I don't know, respond to or reframe and pose it in a, as a question for further discussion. What was the, what Mark uh, and then John had talked about, uh, the being willing to die for something like that angle. Uh, is it, is it interesting? I mean, I think it's true that, you know, if you got to have that level of commitment about something. Um, but then the, that raises the question of like, well, what is it that you're committed to in that way? And it seems like that can be, uh, an, you know, a, a legitimate desire or impulse that gets hijacked by bad actors, you know, like say, for example, in a cult setting like Jim Jones, you know, um, People's Temple, like uh, it, there's this quote from A Catcher in the Rye of all places that, and I don't know if it's Salinger that this was original to him or if he was getting it from somewhere else. I don't recall in the book that he cited anybody else. So I'm assuming it was his, but he said something like uh, the mark of a immature mind is that it wants to, you know, die uh, heroically for a great cause. And the, the mark of a mature mind is he wants to live humbly for a good one or something to that effect. Um, and I, not to denigrate, I mean, obviously you have people who say like Medal of Honor winners or, you know, I mean, some of those citations, you'd say, wow, this person certainly deserves honor, you know, for dying for, you know, to, for, you know, for to, to save the lives of his, you know, people to his right and left, or, you know, or whatever, a great peril to his own life, you know. Um, but then in, in, in today's times where you have, we live in a very self, uh, very safe and sheltered society in terms of physical dangers, you know. And so if, if you have this impulse where I want to have a, a, a meaningful cause in my life, you know, that, that I would be willing to die for, it seems like people, it's similar to like a religious sort of fanaticism, gravitate towards a cause. And if they're not mature in terms of their character development, you know, their emotional maturity, that sort of thing that they can gravitate towards a cause that is harmful, you know, and, and I, anyway, I look at the left today and I just, since they're the ones on the ascendant, you know, uh, who have political and cultural power at this moment in the West, you know, and, and we're seeing a lot of the negative, harmful aspects of their ideology just being imposed, you know, at great cost, uh, you know, to our society. It seems like they, a, a lot of that is driven by that same type of impulse to have a cause that you're willing to, you know, die for, which in itself would be a good thing if it was attached to a good cause, but because it's, you, you have these emotionally immature people with, uh, you know, psychological, you know, abnormalities, cluster B type, you know, 
personality disorders. And, uh, you, you know, they're being told by society. Um, and this is a second point, which maybe I should make later. So this one can, can get responded to, but it just, it, people are, are, are today's culture. It encourages people to be just affirmed as they are in advance of any, you know, uh, spiritual, psychological, emotional, moral development. And so you have people who are very undeveloped in those ways being pushed towards here, you know, attach yourself fanatically to this cause, which is bigger than yourself, you know, be willing to go riot or, you know, tear down, destroy society or, or whatever, right? Like, you know, the, the woke are, have been very, or Marxists, as John termed it, you know, have been very good at hijacking that energy and putting it in a very perverted direction where it, instead of being an instrument of building up honor and virtue, it's an instrument of tearing everything down and destroying it's, you know, it's almost like the, I don't know. So I'll just leave that and, and come back to the other point I was going to make later and see if uh, anybody, Mark's, I guess, got his hand up. So Mark, you're, since you're the one that started the talk about having something you're willing to die for, maybe you can talk about that. Thanks, man. Um, well, actually, before I get to Grant, I just wanted to agree with Daniel that, um, well, here's the thing. If you think about people that loot and riot, um, and there's plenty of them, uh, many that, I, that I've seen firsthand, and honor is certainly not the first or the 701st term that springs to mind. What springs to mind is strategy, um, in the worst way and some sort of, you know, stochastic, uh, you know, assessment of a situation in the moment where you say like, well, my principles are malleable to any moment. What benefits me most in this particular moment of time and space? That is dishonor. That's not even dishonor. That's like anti-honor. It's something, something that isn't, um, I, I would say it's something like evil. Personally, I would say that like we're getting very close to the concept of evil when we say that I have no principle that I can't drop in a moment because it benefits me in this moment. Uh, but to get to Grant's point, because I think Grant really uh, got to the heart of what I was talking about in terms of the split between the noun and the verb. Um, when he's talking about his um, conversations that he had regarding the mandates and um and Grant, I think, has the right form of integral art, in, in, in integrated honor, in the sense that, and I, I, Grant, let me know if you disagree, but I think that, like, the, the honor code that you've internalized, and it doesn't mean it rules you, but it's the one that, like, you, you know, it's your, it's your, it's your uh, guiding uh, light, your, your, your rock, essentially, is the idea that you defend and protect the Constitution. Or something like what what's the what lie what the foundation of that is at the very least, right? And well, here I'll, just, I'll cut in real quick just to provide clarity on that. It's because I took an oath to the constitution, right. not because I'm like, oh, the constitution is the greatest thing ever. I took an oath, and so I have to fulfill that oath. And I took time to consider before I took that oath whether or not I would be able to be consistent with that given my values. And, you know, like that's, that's where the free will comes in. Um, right, right. I, I, I'm not disagreeing with that at all. I, I think that it's a difficult thing to define because there is this intersection between 
the internal principles and and then choosing the external form of that like in saying what you what you did voluntarily you said okay i took i will take an oath to defend these things because they're worth defending and then you're presented with the impossible um uh, paradox as john was saying like sort of with the samurai with the, the bushido code and how like there are ways in which that can get scrambled and like have paradoxical problems and like your i think your problem was a lot easier in some not not to say that it was easy for you to do but it was easy to decide which side to to, to go towards in the sense that just from a logical standpoint it's just sort of like this thing that they're ordering is against the oath that i took like in other words like your decision as difficult as it was at a at a physical level and in terms of like the risk that you were taking on um whether it was social risk to reputation risk to your job risk to, I, I you know i know many veterans um who you know they will say that like well you know if i get a dishonorable discharge you know like that's going to affect me for the rest of my life it's going to affect my job opportunities it's going to affect me on a personal a deep level and so it's sort of like even threatening that even holding that you know sort of damocles over your head was absolutely a threat and something that you needed to stand up to and like you know proving yourself honorable in the face of in my opinion a dishonorable virus that was going through every strata of society for the past three years whether it was military whether it was political you know um, professionals certainly like we all kind of had to deal with that and we all made decisions um that hurt us in, in, in various ways. I don't talk about my personal or professional life very much, but I absolutely experienced some of that. And I know John has, and I know, I, I know from talking to people that other, you know, others of us have run afoul of that. And so like, to, to your point, I think that like, when we talk about virtue and we talk about um, uh, something, you know, adhering to some set of principles that are, you know, abstract in some way. They're not. They're, we didn't. We didn't invent them, but we can see them and define them, and and to say that and and inhabit them. And I think that like that's a great uh, baseline for honor, right? Particularly now, particularly in like this. You know, I think Daniel touched on this, and, and maybe Harrison, where it's like we live in an age where it's very, very um, chaotic almost, right? Like it's sort of like it's easier to be an orc in this age than it is to be a Westman. You know, it's sort of like, like to have no honor, to have no principles, to have nothing that you would die for um, or that you would risk everything is very difficult because the complexity is so much more. You know, it's like that, even that interaction between like integral system of honor and the external form, which would be something like the army code the, um, or, or a number of other different codes. It's sort of like uh, that becomes that that actually like forces us in some way to do what we're doing here, which is to say, yeah, we come from a bunch of different backgrounds. We have a lot of different priors. You know, the, I'm just talking about the six of us or the seven of us or um, um, where like there's, you know, there's this idea that, um, oh, well, if we if we conflict in this way or that way we can't integrate our systems we we can't we can't fully coalesce like in the sense of what it means to be honorable but i think that we've proven that's not the case 
if any, if nothing else, like we've proven that we could come from a very, very different background with a very wide um, diversity, <laughs> let's say, of of um, philosophical priors and like things that we believe and don't believe, and yet there is honor, you know. I and I and maybe that's like the core of it. Maybe core is that like I trust this guy. His reputation is solid enough for me because I've seen I've seen him go through this fire or that fire, and maybe I wouldn't have gone through those fires. Maybe I would have gone through different fires, but maybe it's just the the capacity to say, okay, I know these people will go through fire, whatever it is, and like you know, in a in a world like ours, in a world that's sort of on you know on flame, you know. Uh, I think that's the most important thing. Whatever our Bushido code is going forward, I think it's going to be based more, it's going to be more fluid than ones in the past. It's going to be based more on like, I can trust, you know, there's a movie, uh, what was the Quentin Tarantino movie? Um, uh, uh, it was the one, Jackie Brown, right? Like there's a scene in that movie where, where uh, Samuel Jackson's character says, I can't trust Melanie but I can trust Melanie to be Melanie, you know? And I could trust Grant to be Grant. I could trust John to be John, Dan to be Dan, Harrison to be Harrison, and et cetera. Um, because like at the, at the end of the day, I know that like when push comes to shove, they will make the decision um, that is moral and, and just. That's about it. I'm John. sorry. I'm sorry. Who had their hand up first? Was it was it Harrison or John? I, no, John did. Okay, yeah. John, go ahead. Yeah. So, like, um, that, the line you finished with kind of reminds me of something that I I can't remember where I first heard of it. It was something like, "I wouldn't trust him with my woman, but I trust him with my life." Uh, so, it's this like deontology question, right? Um, it's definitely impossible and really incredibly important to have uh, guiding principles that you're not willing to compromise on. At the same time, a purely deontological way of looking at things can be so inflexible that uh, you become manipulated. Like someone else understands the rules you live by, and then they can, you know, use those rules to make them, make you do what they what they want you to do. Um, but then too much flexibility, of course, leads to exactly that kind of consequentialism. And my sort of feeling on it is that the an organic conscience that's kind of constantly paying attention to what is happening in objective reality around you and to the particulars of those situations is sort of is incredibly important to possess. Uh, and this is something that has to be trained up over time um it's not something that and and you can't ever really turn it off the, the moment you just start sort of saying uh i'm just going to follow these rules no matter what you're not really paying attention so closely and of course if you do the consequentialist thing of like i'm just going to do whatever is going to benefit me the most right now then that's not consistent with having a conscience so you might almost say that honorable honorable behavior is sort of doing we're trying to do to the best of your ability what is right in any given moment, um, both in terms of what's morally correct and you know sort of doing things correctly. Right, it gets back to that you know right, 
ride ride well, shoot straight, and speak the truth. Um, is that John? Just for a second, does that mean that we all have the same touchstone? Like, I'm trying to figure out what it is that would be the unifying, I don't know, first principle or law of say, you know, the bunch of us here, because it's it's difficult sometimes. What do you, what do you think? It is. I I think I think it's a commitment to what's true. Honestly, um, I think that's like the broader the broader thing that brings the sort of dissident sphere yeah, I agree. In general I agree, totally. together I is like, is sort of like just being like, just prioritizing truth above all else. Um, and uh, yeah, what you were saying about rioters as kind of the ultimate consequentialists um, or, or an excellent example of that, I think is, is pretty on point. Like I, I think if an, an honorable person will be willing to die for something. I think that is, I th- I don't think there's any way of getting around that. Like you have to be, have, have something that you are so unwilling to compromise on that you will die for that if it comes to it. Not that you'll seek it, but you know, if it comes to it, you will. Um, and there's probably not many things that you would be willing to kill for. Whereas, the sort of polar opposite of that is someone who is not willing to die for anything at all, but is maybe much more willing to kill for things. For you know, for instance, I want your sneakers, I want your TV, um, I want to have sex with you, even though you don't want to. Things like that. Uh, so yeah, I was I was going to say something about my own experiences with the COVID facts and like I think the, the clarifying moment I experienced when they it became clear that they were going to force this on everyone and um just like grant said in the chat that it was an incredibly easy decision uh to say no not doing it no matter what they they, they if they'll have to kill me and that was my reaction as well so and and that sort of put everything into perspective you know when you're willing to destroy your career over something for instance like you realize that there are higher things than just the momentary advantage or physical comfort or what have you. Um, yeah. Uh, Harrison, what did you want to say? Well, whenever we have like a discussion like this on a, on a word, there's always, there's always overlap and like bleed, bleeding between all these different concepts and all these different words, right? So I'm sure we could probably come up with a, a solid definition of honor and we could say, okay, only the things that fit in this box count as honor. But, you know, as it is, there is a lot of bleed through to other terms. And um, one, of the, one of the terms that I think has been kind of a, um, has connections with most of the things that we've discussed is excellence. So I think honor might be in its various interpretations, like honor as a, a public, um, a public and kind of socially consensual system of, of recognizing excellence maybe. And then honor as this like integral, um, personal, recognition and effort towards developing one's own excellence. Um, but I think there's, and I think when, when you guys were talking about when, when Mark asked the question and and John, you responded truth, 
um, even then, excellence, I think, is, uh, and, and again, excellence, there could be another word for it. That's just the one I'm picking up. The, there, there could be some overlap there with truth and excellence, too, because it's like, okay, well, um, if you've got a, if we have a, like a common, a common goal or a common direction, well, truth could be easily be part of excellence. There's like a, a value to truth, right? And excellence is just the, the way I see it is, is the supreme value. And so there's a, there's a static element to it in the, in the sense that, okay, well, you, well, if you use a, a physical analogy, you've got the static element of, of gold having like a high physical value. Gold is an excellent metal and excellent um an excellent thing to have and but there's also a, a time element to it a dynamic element to it where excellence is like a goal that that you're that you're striving for it's a it's a, a future oriented um you know a future oriented thing that either pulls you or that or that you that you feel attracted to and that that, that uh that you guide your your actions to to find and so there are kind of there are connotations of moral excellence and the and the the recognition the recognition of excellence and that kind of that that in that interior um that interior conscience the 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 excellence of a of a of a pure conscience and doing what you're doing what your conscience guides you to do even if uh even if it's difficult you know even if you have to die and um yeah, there was one more thing, but uh, but Grant raising his hand uh, made me lose my train of thought. So Grant, why don't you jump in there? <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't want to do that. I'll, um, I'll remember it. Okay, so um, yeah, with respect to to excellence and and honor, I mean, I definitely think that they're connected. And my big concern is that if we don't kind of divorce ourselves from, you know, the these like a, a rigid institutionally derived uh, mechanism for establishing hierarchy like we we all agree the institutions are are bankrupt both morally intellectually spiritually um so we have to have our own separate means of restoring and using this concept because it's an important concept and you know it, a part of being honorable like like we, we talked about how to define it, like the pursuing of truth, the way that I characterize that because of maybe inherent negativity bias, as I say, don't be delusional. Because um, that's the real danger is that you are, you, you push, you pursue the perception of excellence or the perception that you are honorable and that you live in accordance with your the, your espoused values, in spite of the fact that it's very obvious to everybody except for you that you don't. And you know what we see on like a societal scale now, we've all kind of acknowledged this is not a word that gets talked about. And it's because it used to be something based off of community. You know, the environment that we evolved under, um, you know, our psychology is all tied up in you know having a reputation and trying to elevate reputation but the rules of the game and the way that it all works is supposed to be in a small enough community that there's consequences for 
uh, breaking these social rules and doing things that are traditionally understood to be dishonorable, you know, which to me is hypocrisy. You know, that's those. So those are the main two rules is you have don't be delusional and don't be hypocritical because being hypocritical is essentially you're, you're socially cheating. You're saying, hey, these are my values. Judge me based on these values. And then you're trying to sneakily not live in accordance with those values when it's convenient and can, and can benefit you. So that's how I try and define it. But in terms of achieving excellence in the, the situation that we find ourselves in, we don't have these small communities. Now, your reputation is spread out over the internet where you can craft a, a narrative and have a brand. Um, and if you're really, really rich, like Jeff Bezos, you can buy an entire newspaper in order to protect your reputation. You know, Bill Gates does the same thing where, uh, you know, ostensibly as a merchant, you're providing something of value. Like that's a, that's a noble profession. It can be, it can be honorable. But those two companies, like in, in the case of like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and what Amazon does in their origins, um, they're not connected with that purpose. And then there's, because they don't have to be. And then you have this whole ability to shape perception. And that's where everybody's focused on is how can we shape perception? How can I look like an honorable person? Um, because now all of a sudden in the current environment, it's possible to do that. It's not something that would have been very easy to get away with in smaller communities. And I think the solution is we can just kind of focus in on it as a concept and call a spade a spade and develop kind of a social technology for filling that gap and recognizing that it is a gap and it's being exploited and just recognizing these people that uh, target perception and public relations um, for what they are. Uh, yeah, Harrison, go ahead. Well, yeah, that, that reminded me of the, of the, the one thing I was going to say ties ties into what you're saying because it reminds me of um something that dabrowski wrote another polish psychologist um on because his his system was developmental so higher and lower levels of basically a, one's personal development and one of the one of the factors of a you know highly developed personality he called authentism like authenticity so basically not being fake and one of the, one of the examples he gave from that was that, uh, for example, if you are given an honor or a <clears throat> a recognition for something that you personally think you didn't deserve or that, that someone else deserved, that a person with authenticity, with authentism, would either refuse the award or say, "No, this other person deserved it." So there's the. I, I thought that was an interesting and an honorable take. So so. In, in that sense, it would be honorable to, for Dabrowski, it might, it might be honorable to refuse a public honor if one felt that one personally didn't deserve it. You know, you don't just take credit for something that you, you don't think you actually deserved, whereas that's the total opposite of the, the totally fake, um, you know, hypocrisy that you're, that you're observing, Grant, about, you know, PR firms and I mean, I was just watching commercials the other day and it just, every time I see a commercial, it reminds me how, just how totally fake everything is that you, you, you want to create the image of it's, it's just, you know, it just 
really rubs me the wrong way how how fake everything is and so like, you want to you just put up a totally created image of what you want to present and uh and then you know that the people that are creating the ads the people who the ads are created for the the people in these companies i mean they they don't live up to that image whatsoever it's a total media creation and everyone knows it's a total media creation and it's just uh, it's just very vomit inducing but but i just wanted to bring up that point about authenticity that's the thing i forgot to say so carry on can i quickly cut in let's let let mark roll because he was he's been he's been waiting yeah. no no that's okay actually I, I need to think a little bit about what harrison just said so let john let john uh carry the ball for a minute a minute Okay, I was just going to, so I just actually looked up the etymology of R, and um, it's uh, much as Harrison said, I said, actually it goes back to a, a Latin term of unknown origin. But what was interesting in the entry is that honest has the same root. So the, the two concepts of honesty and honor are deeply connected to one another, which I think is in alignment with Harrison's remarks about the necessity of authenticity to honor and the, the total lack of it, just the absolute disingenuousness um, of so much that uh, that we encounter in our society. Something I forgot to say before, um, further to uh, what Dan was saying about um, how you'll have these kinds of prog cause heads who will latch on to some uh some some cause as a source of meaning in their lives um you know probably related uh in many cases to like that that search for honor and recognition uh amazing i think an excellent example of that is prince harry you know here you have a guy who um he was all set up to be like a, a warrior prince out of uh in, in, in the classic mold, right? You know, he was in Afghanistan, he's killing the Taliban, and he's kind of joking about it on TV. And he, you know, he's, he's got, you know, he's a bit dissolute sometimes, but in a kind of a charming way. And like everyone kind of loved him. He was, by, at least he was my favorite royal for a long time. Um, and then, you know, that obviously wasn't really enough because, you know, Afghanistan <laughs> was what it was. Uh, and what happens? He goes woke. He goes woke hard to the degree that like he has alienated his entire family he's certainly alienated his entire fan base um you know the guy has essentially destroyed his life uh and you know you could make the argument that like well you know he sacrificed all of those things for these principles that he decided were really important to him uh you know anti-racism or whatever um and yeah okay i guess but you know, I think he kind of failed a test of discernment there in terms of um, attaching himself to something that was that was actually you know worthy of that kind of energy, and that destroyed him in the end, uh, because what he attached himself was not honest, and you cannot find honor through anything dishonest. Can I, can I ask this though? Um, jump in because I, I've thought about the Prince Harry too and I thought to myself sort of like he he seems to be skipping from one system of dishonesty to the next 
um, in the sense that uh, you know you you call him the warrior prince, and I and I and I I read some bit of well as much as I could stand of uh, his passages about his experiences in Afghanistan, and I think to myself, it's, you know, it's sort of like he's a I don't want to call him a victim of postmodernism. He's more of a representation and extension of it, of his post-truth reality, where again, everything is strategic. Everything is based on stochastic probability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't actually, sorry, I, I, just to clarify, because those are great points. I didn't mean to imply that like he ever really was that. I think, I think at some level, he kind of wanted to be that at least at one point in his life, but in the context in which he felt, found himself with like, you know, public relations and, you know, marketing and, you know, it's kind of just this very postmodernist, post-truth way of approaching things um, where, you know, you can't really be sincere about anything and it's all just flim flam. You know, I, I suspect that that probably was incredibly corrosive to his spirit. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was corrosive, and it's sort of like this is it. This is the when we when we talk about um, what is left that's honorable. I think we're we're really talking about dishonor, I, or the things that like the acid that destroys the possibility for truth, or at least even seeking truth. You know, we're all we're all trying. You know, we're all trying our best. We're we're not perfect. Um, accepting that is going to be a big part of i think to some degree repairing the world and rebuilding those kinds of systems whatever they look like you know they're going to look weird they're not going to look like the older systems i don't think i think they're going to they're there's whatever we cobble together um of sensibility of of the idea of some sort of intelligible moral order like whatever it is that like we end up integrating in ourselves it's going to look different than previous generations it just will there's no getting around it like like we've we, we've the, the level of complexity that you know I, i'm sitting here speaking into a microphone setup that I, I kind of cobbled together this morning it's just sort of like the we often don't give ourselves enough credit for how much um complexity we need to deal with on a daily basis that Every other generation, including like ones that are still alive, interestingly enough, like someone who's 90 years old, like let's say Noam Chomsky, for example, who recently uh, was exposed as yet another, you know, compromata target of, well, the globe-spanning nightmare squid, whatever you want to call it. Like, like you look at somebody like him, and it's just sort of like he, even he, I, I read works of his, like works of Chomsky about um, natural language programming, uh, you know, and which delved into sort of, you know, Cartesian theories of automata. And it goes into a lot of different areas. And like, you know, but at the end of the day, like I had the judgment on Chomsky. I was just like, okay, he's my postmodern enemy. I understand this person now. This is not a trustworthy person. And like they continually expose themselves because they have no honor. You know, Chomsky appears on the list of... Um, you know, on Epstein's greatest hit list for the same reason that if Foucault was alive today, he would appear on it. These people are, are without honor. They, they pretend that there is no truth. Like a postmodern project in a way is a post, a post truth project. 
there there is no um there is no bottom to it you know it's like is Foucault can he can rape kids in a in a in a cemetery and like again this could be a no this could be a thing that's accepted by a certain group of people and say like eh, well you don't throw away the baby with the bathwater like that's the opposite of honor this is where like really this is where the rubber meets the road it's just sort of like you you know you a thing can be known and you could say based on that thing that this person has no there's no there's no core of iron in them there's no thing that would say like okay you know i can see beyond this moment and and i can see to some extent like a future that i that i don't and that i'm not i'm not involved in because i'm not alive like it's it, to some degree it, it honor is a long term investment is the, the thing that i'm going to say it's sort of like and that and that long term is you know eternity to some degree um, you know, it's like we, we, to do a thing in the moment, to make a decision in the moment, when it's a snap decision, it's sort of like, um, it, if we're going to look at honor as a system, then the system should say in the future, even after I'm dead, everything that I've done will measure up to the kind of a future that people would want to live in. Daniel. I'm sorry, Daniel. Daniel, go ahead. Oh, um, yeah, what you're saying about Foucault and uh, Chomsky and people like that, kind of, it kind of um, brings to mind a comparison of a moral philosopher in 323 BC versus a moral philosopher in 2023 AD. You know, like how I guess with ancient philosophers is like they did philosophy. It was like a way of life, how to live well. There's this idea supposed to be reflected in a lifestyle more than theory. Whereas today, you know, you can have a moral philosopher. It's like can give you a whole dissertation on, you know, some moral position, but it may or may not have any morality that they live by, really. You know, it's just it completely is divorced from any kind of practice, any kind of, you know, and I guess it's it's right, right. There's, no, I agree. Yeah, no, just to cut in, like, I agree, like, it's sort of, there's no, like, like, they could even adopt something like that, that is similar or sounds similar to what we're talking about, just for a moment, just for five minutes, as long as it, you know, as long as it Brothers benefits them in that moment. Uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I guess it's kind of like, it, it comes down to the, the lack of any kind of unifying vision or moral philosophy or cultural story you know whatever that is probably easier in a more because the word has different connotations i hate to use it but it's i think it's correct a more primitive culture has uh you know an easier time having some kind of story they can tell themselves about this is who we are this is what we're about this is what we value this is what the ideal human life looks like you know, so they, there's an easier time of forming, you know, moral judgments or, or, you know, some sort of character in line with that. Whereas in today's world, it's everything's been deconstructed so much that there's no unifying uh, vision for what, you know, a, a good life should even be. And, uh, you know, so you have these, and I, I have been thinking about this, like, I don't know it, whether it's possible, you know, 
is with your your moral philosophy is either got to be grounded in something else or it's just you know kind of self-referential in a circular way or arbitrary posited or it's self-evident if that's possible you know maybe it, it is a uh but i think some an argument could be made that it is but you have uh i wish luke was here because he's more the expert in this the uh you know you, i mean just the, the highlights of moral philosophy of like virtue ethics with aristotle and and others that you know a good character precedes right action that you know in order to do right things you you develop a, a good character and then the deontological you know Kant being an example of this like the you know, have these right uh, uh rules of thumb or whatever that reliably give you the right action in any circumstance and that's what's to be emphasized and there's something to be said for that because to develop good character you got to practice right action i suppose uh or there's, uh, you know, which I kind of prefer better, a blend of this is like a, something like Aquinas's natural law theory with, but based on, you know, of, of human nature, like a natural law, moral philosophy, based on a human nature where it, with human nature, it would be what is, and it, here you um, question begging I, I know but it's uh you know what is strong what it, what gives person a, a person strength and excellence and uh you know a good life like that kind of thing like in us i guess looking at how people live and how people live in ways that are healthy in the in the sense that you know you talk about integrity like a structural integrity you know like that where the whole thing coheres and it's and it's flourishing and it's uh, optimized for people to live well you know for example people to raise children and and have good relationships parents with children spouses ha happy you know healthy flourishing marriages and flourishing you know families and flourishing you know neighborhoods and and you know civic groups uh you know people to the the needs that people have for fellowship belonging camaraderie uh physical health and you know emotional well-being all that to be realized and to say then that informs the virtue ethics or the right action which i guess are two sides of the same coin but what we have today is like you have feminist care ethics which um and you also have the consequentialism the utilitarianism where and both of those to me they're they're useful in so far as they can act as checks on a moral system not as the foundation of the moral system what i mean by that like uh you know say care ethics um and this was it was the idea that as a feminist alternative to you know male dominated moral philosophy where it's like it's all about you know the relationship of mother to child you know and that sort of caring that's supposed to be the basis for a, a, a feminist morality but what we have is like the the longhouse like john's article about the safetyism uh you know it the only legitimate use of a care ethics to me is to have a as a check on you know if you you can take a, a like a, a, a deontological rule-based ethics to such an extreme that you're following the rule for its own sake, even though it's harming 
everybody involved in the in the exchange you know and so, so you could have whether consequentialism or feminist care ethics is like just the corrective to that to say okay let's keep in mind that we're about you know helping real life flesh and blood people and not promoting some set of rules for its own sake or or some you know theory for its own sake grounding it in something real but at the end of the day i probably have done a poor job of of articulating this but you know a moral philosophy that is based on you know real life human nature how and then how to promote more of the things that in a natural state people value people want you know which is like families relationships uh you know strength virtue um you know integrity people uh competence that type of stuff which uh, you know be beyond me to then list what that would look like but just saying that that, that should be the orientation and you know um uh, you know that that's really what's lacking in our culture is any kind of vision like that of what people you know what the, what the ideal is for people to flourish individually and as, as part of families and as part of you know communities and so forth you know how do people live well and uh there's no unifying vision there so i don't know if we have to do like a platonic thing where we invent a set, set of noble lies to <laughs> Which I don't think that's the right answer. You know, some kind of religious story that we just invent and pretend like it's real. And after a couple of generations, people accept it. I don't think that's the answer. But, you know, I don't know what the answer is. Like, how do you, and maybe it's not possible in a, in a nation or world that's as global and, you know, so many on the scale that things are where so many relationships are impersonal. You have these large institutions. How do you, uh, you know, maybe it's not possible to present a unifying vision that people will buy into maybe the answer is just after this whole project collapses and the next go around you know when people are rebuilding society you know people cohere around a vision and whichever society has the best vision is will out compete the others i don't know but uh anyway that's my mishmash of <laughs> ideas so uh, on to grant yeah i i think that it, it's really hard, right? It's really hard to define all those things. And so what we have today is a bunch of people who's, uh, who've given up trying and gone the postmodernist route. And, you know, they try and say that truth doesn't exist. And then anybody who tries to say that it does is, you know, has nefarious intentions uh, as if they don't. And then on top of all that, they'll go so far as to say that character just isn't a thing, you know, cause that, that goes along with it. Like nobody has good character. And I've experienced this personally with people that have, uh, are of what I consider to be low character and they just outright deny that anyone has better character than them. Oh, everybody's a liar. Everybody's just out for themselves. Um, I'm just playing the game. Right. And, uh, those people are lost. Um, because that's not true. That's not the nature of reality. Um, there are human beings that are capable of uh, great honor and making the world a better place and serving those around them while also uh, taking care of themselves. Um, the idea that you can't live a fulfilling uh, 
successful life going after your purpose uh, without screwing people over in the process, that that's kind of like the inherent way that nature works is just a consequence of economic ignorance. You know, that's obviously the world has more material wealth and abundance than uh, than there was 10,000 years ago. And if we can figure out the social technology of how to not have, you know, that spin into materialism and how have people who essentially it's it's a bunch of people engaging in efficient self-deception trying to promote this lie because it makes it easier for them to extract more wealth and and prosper um you know i view that, that it's very simple to me there's a legitimate way to prosper and that is through service to others you know, you don't take it out of somebody else's hide. You produce value by becoming excellent, developing skills, and then you get a share of that value that you produce in order to get by. I mean, that's that's in accordance with the, you know, the constraints imposed on us by nature. You know, and I just, it's it's disgusting to hear somebody say that you know there's no such thing as character and everybody's a liar. It's like then then what are you doing here? You know, like, how can you even internalize such a belief and continue going on living uh, when, when you're openly acknowledging that you are doing it at the expense of everybody around you? Like, the more you succeed, the more you are stealing and tearing down others. It's, um, it's alien to me. It's, it's uh, patently false. And um yeah we just exactly how to be virtuous exactly the stuff to do and building a robust system i don't know that we need that i mean we just need a fundamental acknowledgement that um there's something there that you can pursue excellence we don't necessarily need to know the best way to do it or how to do it just that you can and that it's worth trying to and that honor is a thing that exists and having it is better than not. Um, John. That was great. Um, I'm gonna propose that we uh, we do concluding remarks. How does everyone feel about that? Yes? Cool. That so these great. will be mine. These will be mine. Um, Brothers will fight and kill each other. Sisters, children will defile kinship. It is harsh in the world, horde and rife. An axe age, a sword age, shields are riven, a wind age, a wolf age. Before the world goes headlong, no man will have mercy on another. That is a description of Ragnarok, um, the, uh, the winter of the world. You find similar descriptions of what the Kali Yuga looks like in the Indian tradition. And, you know, this is this sort of makes me feel that these sorts of times have come before. And, you know, we can certainly look at history. We can see the decadent periods and all sorts of civilizations when honor and all conception of honor, all belief in, in anything good in the world and virtue and honesty um, just leeches out of society. 
and everything kind of falls apart, not just socially, uh, but at a psychological or emotional level that destroys people as well. So the Mary Harrington article that um, kind of uh, partially inspired this episode, it's actually titled The Incredible Shrinking Men. Um, or no, sorry, no, the, just Incredible Shrinking Men. And I think that title on its own gets at something important here, is that when you're deprived of honor, uh, internally, the practice of it, the, the, the external recognition of it, um, you are diminished. As Harrison said, uh, you know, this is tightly wound up with this notion of excellence, um, of pushing for something higher and better, of growing, uh, of virility and vitality and mastery. You take all that away and you, well, you get your opposites, you get decay and, um, you shrink, right? I think there is an, a hunger out there among some people who haven't fully succumbed to this. And I think even amongst a lot of, I, th I think a lot of the kind of low character people who say, um, oh, there's no such thing as uh, honesty, everyone's out for themselves and so on. I think a lot of cases, they're probably wounded idealists. They'd like to believe, they'd like to practice it, but um, they haven't experienced it. And it's just easier uh, to take the path of least resistance. Um, they could probably be improved if the social standards improved, they would hold themselves to them. But it falls on you know those of us who haven't succumbed in that fashion to, 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 to point the way towards and start building uh, something better. Um, Mark mentioned, you know, the honor code, the kind of new Bushido that we're going to have to uh, develop. Um, and I think that is absolutely going to be uh, something very important um, in the, the coming years. You know, we have this problem of an elite, so-called, which is not elite in any way, except that they have power and wealth, but they are awful in everything they lie they cheat they steal um they do they are per, they are hypocrites in every possible respect you know they engage in perversions of the most monstrous sort and encourage others in those um this is intolerable uh it can't go on so it won't um we're going to need a new elite where will that elite be found well that remains to be seen although i have some ideas on that but that elite will have to be virtuous if anything is really going to change for the better in the next historical cycle. Um, and that is going to mean some kind of honor code. I'll leave it there. Anybody want to go next? Uh, okay, I'll go next. Um, I'm sorry for for interrupting Grant and is a magnificent is a magnificent um, uh, tract there. Uh, because he said something that really stuck out to me, which is that we see this, we actually see people and hear them. And sometimes, sometimes they're even in our own lives. And it's an insane thing to experience. To, to hear someone that, you know, you grew up with, 
and and know and ostensibly trust and love and then to hear them say these things to hear them say well there is no truth everybody's really out for themselves ultimately underneath everything and and you you hope like i do i had an experience of this sort in the past couple of months where there was someone i i've known for almost my entire life and they were saying these and like I could not wrap my head around it. Well, I could, obviously, because I've seen I've seen it, I've seen it permeated throughout culture and in some ways throughout the world. But it's just sort of like it hits home when it's somebody that you said, like, well, I've known you. In this case, it was a woman that I've known from when I was a, a very young man, essentially a child. And um, and to see people like say it is creepy because it 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 amounts to people that are, um, you know, you hate to say lost. I I hate to say lost, at least. You know, I I am I am a believe it or not, I'm an optimist. I believe the cat can be found, uh, but but it's difficult. There's like a, there's a there's a very very thick shaft that's that's happening right now. Um, a very thick fog. And uh, to to John's point, I, yeah, there 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 needs to be a code that's developed, but it's not it's not going to be like older codes. It, I don't think it can. Like I think that you know to to say like okay, well we're going to commit ourselves to the truth. Well, that's going to be similar to what some bad people will say. They'll say we also commit to the code, and it's also about the truth. And by the way, here's our committee of truth. Here's our ministry of truth. If you doubt us, just just go to Snopes.com or something, and like we'll prove to you what is true. You know, we'll 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 uh, we'll come up with a system that allows you to test yourself against it. And and weirdly enough, like all of those truths will support the idea of you just doing whatever the hell you were going to do anyway. Um, and and and. Again, we can't we can't have that. We can't have chaos. You know, we can't we we need to, even though I I started this by saying that, like, you know, by by criticizing to some degree the idea of an honor code, the fact of the matter is that we do need an honor code. And that honor code is going to be based on something like what Grant was saying, where it's just sort of like, yeah, you know. I'm listening to what you're saying, and I disagree with A, C, and F, but I can tell somehow that you're looking for the truth, you know, and that you're telling me the truth. You're telling me the, the you know, you're telling me the truth as far as you can grasp it, you know, and, and it's sort of like, and that's what I think everyone is doing. Well, well, not everyone, but like everyone in our circles is trying to say like, okay, I'm trying to grasp because this is a dangerous situation because we have like a lot of orcs and goblins running around that are just that are just saying hey there is no truth and by the way gimme you know and uh and and in uh in john you know since john provided a quote um i found one from tolkien from his letters which i think in part sums up the problem uh and so he says um in the Lord of the Rings, the conflict is not basically about 
freedom, though that is naturally involved. It's about God and his sole right to divine honor. The elder and the Numenorians believed in the one, the true God, and held worship of any other person as an abomination. Sauron desired, he desired to be God king and was held to be this by his servants. If he had been victorious, he would have demanded divine honor from all rational creatures and absolute temporal power over the whole world. And so there I say like, okay, so honor is something like, yes, it's, I don't know if it's generated from within or if it's something that it's something that you adopt and integrate. Um, but there are different hierarchies to it. And so as you go up far enough, you say like, well, I have honor within myself and I have this code within myself and I will follow it and I will follow it to the truth. Um, I think outside of that, it does get more dangerous because every time you export it to a different authority structure, um, you have to realize that that authority structure also exports or, or outsources their authority to another level higher. And that ultimately, you probably are going to find yourself either on the side of truth or untruth. And, uh, and hopefully, the system of honor that we develop will be on the side of truth. That's it. All right. I'll, I'll end with a quote, too. Um, we'll be doing a, at least a couple shows on the forest passage by Ernst Younger on Mind Matters. And so with it fresh in my mind, um, I wanted to read something, uh, something from near the end of the book. So he writes, whatever the situation, whoever the other, the individual can become this fellow human being and thereby reveal his native nobility. The origins of aristocracy lay in giving protection, protection from the threat of monsters and demons. This is the hallmark of nobility, and it shines today in the guard who secretly slips a piece of bread to a prisoner. This cannot be lost, and on this the whole world subsists. These are the sacrifices on which it rests. So a whole lot of context missing, but I thought there were at least a few things in there that touched on our discussion. And that's it for me. Well, uh, I guess the thing to do is to end with a quote, so I'll follow suit. Um, I was actually, okay, thinking about this quote from G.K. Chesterton and uh, The Everlasting Man and uh, my own experience with theism I've been most convinced of it when I've, I guess, by it, not so much seeing goodness, but seeing the evil in the world and thinking like, wow, if, the, if there's people and, and forces this depraved acting on us, and if there seems to be this fatal flaw built in, then maybe there is some, you know, opposite, I guess, the, the symmetry, you know, but maybe there's some opposite, you know, form of goodness that would uh, counteract us. But there's this, Line from uh, Everlasting Man. Now, whether this is historically accurate, I don't. I don't know. You know, uh, but the sentiment it seems to map onto what we're experiencing today. Right. So anyway, he says uh, all the great groups that stood about the cross represent, in one way or, or another, the great historical truth of the time that the world could not save itself. Man could do no more. Rome and Jerusalem and Athens and everything else were going down like a sea turned into a slow cataract. 
Externally, indeed, the ancient world was still at its strongest. It is almost always at that moment that the inmost weakness begins. But in order to understand that weakness, we must repeat what has been said more than once. That it was not the weakness of a thing originally weak. It was emphatically the strength of the world that was turned to weakness and the wisdom of the world that was turned to folly. In the story of Good Friday, it is the best thing in the world that are at their worst. That is what really shows us the world at its worst. It was, for instance, the priests of true monotheism and the soldiers of an international civilization. Rome, the legend founded upon fallen Troy and triumphant over fallen Carthage, has stood for a heroism which was the nearest that any pagan ever came to chivalry. Rome had defended the household gods and the human decencies against the ogres of Africa and the hermaphrodite monstrosities of Greece. But in the lightning flash of this incident, we see great Rome, the imperial republic, going downward under her Lucretian doom. Skepticism had eaten away even the confident sanity of the conquerors of the world. He who is enthroned to say what is justice can only ask what is truth. So in that drama which decided the whole fate of antiquity, one of the central figures is Mick is fixed in what seems the reverse of his true role. Rome was almost another name for responsibility, yet he stands forever as a sort of rocking statue of the irresponsible. Man could do no more. Even the practical had become the impractical. Standing between the pillars of his own judgment seat, a Roman had washed his hands of the world. Yeah, talking about the pilot's line, what is truth, and you know all that. Uh, but it does seem like there's this, in our time, I, I don't I'm, I guess I'm kind of pessimistic. I'm, if there's not something or someone or some force of good outside of, you know, maybe that could operate both imminently and transcendently, so could operate in and through people. Uh, but if there's not something greater to bring that virtue or, or orient people towards virtue, I don't, I don't really see, uh, I'm very pessimistic. I wish I wasn't. I wish there was a way I could see looking forward that things will work out in our culture. I just see, given looking at America, I see a real tragic, uh, kind of along the lines of a, a tragic hero where could have, it did some great things, could have been great. It could have been so much more, but there's this fatal flaw that's kind of baked into it that undermines the whole thing. And now we're seeing that play out like the, the downfall of this, you know, I guess iconic tragic hero that, you know, it could have been better, but given the type of like, there's this fatal flaw, whether it's human nature, whether it's, you know, I'm not sure the, the undermining of some sort of parasitic evil that has worked its way into the whole thing. But there just seems like humans have done the best they can. And so, you know, I would like that to believe, I would like it to be true that there is a God of some sort, you know, that's indicated by these stories and symbols and hopes and dreams and prayers and all that, you know, that will intervene in some way, whether through people or whether, transcendently or whatever but yeah it's kind of my closing thought which too bad doc's not here because i'm sure it would piss him off royally for me to uh, end on a theological <laughs> note but anyway well i'll close this out since everybody's doing quotes um and you're talking pessimism daniel i wish it need not have happened in my time said frodo 
So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Tonic Discussions on Honor. If you enjoyed the conversation, like, subscribe, leave a comment, and we hope to see you all next time.